Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor John Lindell, lead pastor at James River Church. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. The title of the message is, It's Your Move. It's Your Move. I'm not much of a board game player, so I never have been, never really have enjoyed that, especially if it involves chance or luck, like it's just your fate's in a roll of a dice or, um, you know, cards that you can't play and change your fate, uh, I'm not interested. So part of it is I'm just, uh, I have a little bit of an ADD tendency. If you're around me, I'm, I'm just, I got to be moving all the time. And, and uh, so unless the, the conversation's super stimulating, uh, you know, the a board game or playing games just won't work for me. So um, anyway, the reason why I tell you that is if you ask my kids, about playing, did your dad ever play board games with you? Invariably, they'll say, well, yes, he did, kind of. Um, and they'll bring up, sorry, we, I'd play sorry with them, only the way I played sorry is that I moved every piece, and I turned every card, and I would tell them what to do. We could play the game about 10 minutes, so, I mean, it'd go like this, so I'd have like David Brennan and Savannah there, and I'd be playing, and, and I'd say, okay, uh, Savannah, you got a one, and I'd move her piece out, and then it'd be Brandon's turn, and I'd say, oh, you got a seven, you can break that up, and then David's turn, and I'd say, oh, you got an 11, you need to trade places with Savannah, because that'll put you closer to home, and then somebody gets a sorry, you ought to knock them out, because they're winning, and you know, I could actually, because I do also like to win, I could position it where um, I had the option of winning, if I wanted to, but <laughs> you're like, what kind of dad are you? <laughs> I mean, all that just says, what a miracle that my kids turned out so good. But uh, <laughs> the reason why I tell that story is because when it comes to God working in a lot of people's lives, that's how they think. They want God to make the move. They want God to turn the card. They want God to move their piece. They want God to tell them exactly what to do every single time. But the fact of the matter is, is that you and I grow in the Lord. It's not that we're not sensitive to the Lord. It's not that we're not listening to the Lord. And there are times God does lead us. But there are other times when God is waiting to see what you and I'll do. And he's not going to say anything. He's waiting because it's your move. What are you going to do? How are you going to step out? You've heard the word. You've, you've heard teaching on the word. You've prayed that God would use you. So now what are you going to do? It is your move. When God anoints you with the Holy Spirit, there is a power of the Lord that is upon your life, and he expects you and I to grow in maturity so that you and I can move in accordance with his will and his purpose in our life. In fact, that's what the anointing's all about. We could define the anointing this way. It's God's presence resting upon a person so they can accomplish God's purpose. God's hand on you so you can accomplish God's purpose. God's desire is for every single one of us to live a supernatural existence. Your salvation was supernatural. We believe there's a ramification supernaturally to your baptism. It is a supernatural life for the believer. So come to 2 Kings and the story of Elisha. It is an amazing story. Let's pick it up in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 9. When they, that's Elijah, 
who was a very notable prophet, and he had an attendant or an apprentice by the name of Elisha who had been with him 10 years. This is the moment when Elijah is going to be caught up into heaven. And Elisha and Elijah are walking together. And when they had crossed the Jordan River, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I can do for you before I'm taken from you. And Elisha said, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. I want, I want to be twice the prophet you were. I want to do twice what you did. I want twice what you have. I want to see God work in through me and in me double what he did in you. It's not a shot at Elijah that this is Elisha saying, Elijah, I believe we serve a God who wants to do more. He wants to do more than we can ask or imagine. Elijah, I want to see God do more. There's something wonderful about that kind of spiritual ambition that says, God, I want all that you have, and I want you to do more in me and through me. God, do more. What happens is, Elijah says, you've asked a difficult thing. Yet, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. And Elisha saw this and cried out, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. He said, what is he saying? He's saying, you were the spiritual backbone. You were the spiritual glue. You were the spiritual leader of the nation of Israel. And now you're gone. And there's a bit of sorrow in all of that to think that this incredible prophet now will no longer be with him. And Elisha saw him no more. Now, as we look at the verses that follow, I want to draw three principles from Elisha about walking in the anointing. Listen, if you and I ask God for more, last week we did, we ended the service by saying, God, we just want more of your presence. Lord, I want to see you do more through me, more through everybody in this church. But if God is going to do more, we have to understand that we have a part to play. That if there's more, there's going to be times the more we, expend, we experience is going to be the result of us stepping out in faith and believing God to do what only he can do. So I want to give you three principles on that. The first one is this, confidence in God's word. Confidence in God's word. Look at it in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 8. Elijah took his cloak. So this is before they cross the Jordan River. He rolled it up, struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. Let me just say this. They're walking up there. God doesn't tell him to do it that we have any record of. Elijah knows they need to get across the river, so Elijah takes his cloak, strikes the water, and it parts. He doesn't even say anything. See, there's a power that comes from spending time with the Lord, that when you and I are walking with the Lord, there is what I would call a divine intuition whereby we know what to do in a certain moment. Here is Elijah, and he's functioning in this divine supernatural intuition. 
He's taken up into heaven. And now watch what happens in verse 13. This is Elisha. Elijah's gone now. He picked up the cloak that had fallen from Elijah, went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak that had fallen from him and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. And when he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. Here's what I want you to notice. The first thing Elisha does when he asks for more is he puts it to the test. He doesn't wait. He doesn't say, well, God, if you tell me what to do, then I'm going to do it. That ought to be assumed for every believer, right? What he does is now he knows he's got the mantle. He saw Elijah go to heaven. And so now he's got confidence in the word of the Lord spoken through that prophet to him. And he goes immediately to the bank of the Jordan. He says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do what I saw him do. And I'm going to see what happens. And so he strikes the water with the cloak and the water parts to the right and the left. You see, some of you, you're waiting, and here's what you're thinking. You're thinking, you know, well, when God tells me to do it, I will do it. When God tells me to step out in faith, I will do it. But Elisha didn't wait for a command. If you only wait for what God tells you to do, you will probably only see half of what he wants to do in your life. Does God talk to us? Yes, he does. But does God want us to live the kind of life where every single thing we do, he specifically had to tell us to do? I want you to think about this. With my, with my children, there was a time when I had to tell them how to do certain things. I'd tell them, hey, you need to do this, you need to do that. But if now at their age I was still having to do that, would I feel like I'd been a successful parent? The answer is no. Would I feel they had reached maturity? What's the answer? No. You see, I'm pleased that now they have grown up in the Lord. They have grown up knowing the things that need to be done, and they are taking the initiative as people who love God, and they're serving God, and they're not having to ask me. They are stepping out. See, that's part of maturity. The ability to say, this is what God would want done. The ability to have a divine intuition of what God is doing in any moment and saying, I'm going to step out. You say, well, how do I know what to do? Just do like Elisha did. Do what you've seen other people doing. What did you see at the week of power? What did you see when somebody prayed for you down here? What did you see when you were standing next to somebody and we were praying for people in the auditorium? What did you see in your life group? What did you see with, with somebody who's got more maturity and you see God using them? Do what you have seen them do. Verse 14, we read this, and he took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah, struck the water, where now is the God of Elijah? And when he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. I want you to think about this for just a moment. That was a stunning act of faith. Because across the river are the school of the prophets, and remember what they said about him? Remember they said, hey, guess what? Today, your master's going to be gone. In the Hebrew, it's today you're going to lose your rank. You think you're all that in a bag of chips because you hang out with him. But guess what? You're going to be just like us. You're nothing special. There's no, God doesn't have anything extraordinary for you. And they're watching. 
So it's not like they're giving him prayer support. Oh, Lord, help him. No, they're like, watch this. This is going to be fun to watch. He's going to find out he's nothing. But he goes up there, and he just says, you know what? God said, if I see it, him leave, then I get a double portion. I'm going to roll this thing up. I'm going to strike the water. It did it for him. It'll do it for me. And it did. Something about having the confidence in God's word that just says, I'm going to go for it. Did God tell him to do it? No, there's no record of that. You could say in a sense, and I just want to encourage within you the audacity to believe God for big things. Too many of God's people are way too timid. And we're in a season where the wind's at our back. We're in a season where we're seeing extraordinary things week after week after week after week. And at some point, yes, God will speak to you, and that's wonderful when he does. But at other times, you got to dare God for big things. Smith Wigglesworth writes this. I love this quote. If you will dare to believe God, you can defy all the powers of evil. There have been times in my experience when I have dared to believe him and have had the most remarkable experiences. It looks like presumption, but God is with the man or woman who dares to stand upon his word. Now listen to this. If you do not venture out in faith, you remain ordinary as long as you live. If you dare the impossible, God will abundantly do far above all you ask or think. Dare the impossible. Believe God for big things. And watch what God will do. He does that, and the prophets are watching. And all of a sudden, the prophets get this sense. In verse 15, we read this. The company of the prophets from Jericho, who were watching, said, they weren't even for him, but it became obvious they couldn't deny it. The spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. All of a sudden, they went from criticizing him to honoring him. All of a sudden, they went from saying, hey, he's nothing, to saying, you know what? There is an anointing on his life. And it all came because he stepped out in faith. Can I just say this? This is that one moment sets up so much of the rest of his life. If you don't step out, this is why the enemy wants to keep you timid keep you intimidated so you won't step out because you don't step out. Nothing's going to happen. Nothing happens. Then you say, well, nothing happens in my life. If you step out, then all of a sudden you're like, oh my goodness, if I step out, God's going to do, he's going to do great things. You know, some of you are, you're afraid you're going to be disappointed. You're more concerned with what if he doesn't than what if he does. I'm just saying sometimes we got to dare God for big things. Number two, courage to seize opportunities for God to work a miracle. That all around us and every single week, there are opportunities for God to show himself powerful. Watch this. Verse 18, when they returned to uh, Elisha, who was staying in Jericho, the man from the city said to Elisha, look, our Lord, this town is well situated, as you can see. So he goes back to Jericho, but the water is bad and the land is unproductive. Now, this is a very interesting story, and there's a lot of things attached to the whole situation of Jericho. 
Jericho, if you know your Bible, and if you don't, we'll explain it here, was a cursed city. Back when Joshua and the Israelites invaded the land, the first city they took was the city of Jericho. There's a principle that you see throughout Scripture. Uh, I've talked about it before and taught on it before. It's the principle of first things. That what you do with the first determines what happens to the rest. And that the first always belongs to God. When it comes to tithing, the first part belongs to God. The first 10%. When you get paid, 10% belongs to God. In fact, the Bible says the tithe is the Lord's. It's, it's his. And what happens is God simply, as you go through it, you can see it all over Scripture. If you're not going to give God what is his, then the balance of what you keep is cursed. I mean, in the book of Malachi, it says that. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse of God. And, and you can read chapter 3, and you can see that. So as they come into Canaan, God says, the first city's mine. And you don't take anything of it. You can have all the rest. And here's the fact. God can do more with the 90% in our life than we could do with the 100%. Anybody who ties knows that to be true. And so if we don't give him the first part, so what happened here is you remember the story when they took the city, the walls came tumbling down. There was a man named Achan, and he kept some of the gold, kept some of the silver, kept some of the clothing. And the result was the armies of Israel were instantly defeated right after that. And God said, listen, you're never going to know victory unless you give me what's mine. And they, he was exposed, he gave it back, and they knew victory from there. Can I just say this, that you and I are never going to know the victory or the blessing of God in our life. I'm not saying this because the church is in a situation where it's got to have your money. I'm saying it because you're in a situation, all of us are in a situation where we need God's blessing on our finances. And it's a joy to give it, the tithes and the offerings. You're watching online, let me just say this, that if you're watching online, this is your church home, then you should tithe to the place that is your spiritual storehouse, the place where you're receiving, the place that you're calling your church. If we're supplemental to you, you have another church, tithe to them. But you need to tithe, that's the point. So watch what happens here. This is very interesting. The city, this is what Joshua says, and all that is in it is to be devoted to the Lord. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you'll not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you'll make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. The, the problem is when we don't honor God in our own life, it not only troubles us, it troubles people around us. If I honor God with, in my life, it not only blesses me, it blesses the people around me. Man, we all understand that, don't we? If I am Blessed by God, my marriage is blessed. If I am blessed by God, my kids are blessed. My grandkids are blessed. The church is blessed. If I'm not blessed by God, you're not blessed. That's how it works in life. So live in a way that brings about the blessing of God on your life. He says, uh, they devoted the city to the Lord, destroyed with the sword, every living thing, men, women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. Cursed before the Lord is the man who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. 
At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up his gates. So as, they're, as they've destroyed the city, Joshua looks at it, and prophetically, he speaks that word over the city, and the city lays idle for centuries. But then King Ahab, up to his time, the most wicked king to ever rule Israel, and this is what we read. And in Ahab's time, it's like, what else can you expect? He's not serving God, so no one else is serving God. Hael of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua son of Nun. What's happening here? Either his sons died when he was doing it, or as it was very often done in that day, you would, you would if you were pagan and serving pagan gods, they sacrificed their children in the fire. So his firstborn son, oftentimes they would take infants and bury them alive in the foundation of a city or of a gate in order to ward off evil spirits. Very possibly that's what's going on. You have a pagan who is involved in child sacrifice to earn the favor of the gods on the city. But here's the thing. Listen, God has said, don't, don't touch this place. They're now trying to reverse that curse. They probably know about the curse. Probably not bothered about offering their, their children as, as an offering to pagan gods. Believing that they can reverse that curse. But now, verse 19 2 Kings 2, the men of the city said to Elisha, look, our Lord, this town is well situated, as you can see. I mean, it's got everything you want. As the realtors say, location, location, location. It's got it all. It's by the Jordan River. It's, got, it's near the Dead Sea. It's got palm trees. It's the place. It, it is a way you can go several different directions from there. It is, it is perfectly situated. You can get to the mall in five minutes. I mean, it is, it is just what you want. But the water is terrible. It's bad and the land is unproductive. Literally, it causes miscarriages. Wow. Women are drinking the water, they're miscarrying. Livestock's drinking the water, they're miscarrying. They're having to bring the water in from the Jordan River. It's a, it's a situation that now what happens is, here is Elisha. They come to him. Elisha has some options here. Elisha can say, well, you know, you shouldn't have built the city in the first place because it's under a curse. And so what do you expect me to do? Or he could do what a lot of Christians do. I am so sorry. That is really a shame. Man, I feel bad for you. And that changes nothing. You see, I think sometimes we're too quick to think that an expression of sympathy on our part is all we can do. When God has brought us to circumstances and situations that are an opportunity for him to do something supernaturally extraordinary that will give him glory and that will change people's situation, not only for their generation, but for every generation after. You can go to Jericho today. That spring is still there, and the water is still great. Think of this. 
thousands of years, almost 3,000 years later, and the water is still good. Do you know what keeps a lot of people from really venturing out into praying and just stopping at an expression of sympathy? It's because they have their eyes on the problem more than on Jesus. I'm just going to tell you this, that the more you look at the problem, the less you'll look at Jesus and the harder faith will be to come by. When you hear a problem, don't look, don't stare at the problem, stare at Jesus. When you see the problem, think of him and let faith fill your heart and believe God's going to do something extraordinary. So watch what happens here. I love this. It's so great. Bring me a new bowl, he said, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring. He threw the salt into it, saying, this is what the Lord says. Why does he say that? Because that's what the Lord said to his heart. I want you to see something. He strikes the water because he's standing on the word of God. He gets a bowl of salt because he's heard the voice of God. Sometimes God's going to expect you to just take what you know from the Word of God and put it into practice. Otherwise, God, other times God's going to speak to your heart and say, listen, I want you to do this. And if you're going to be caught up in, well, I don't know what good a bowl and a bunch of salt's going to do. I don't even get how that works, God. And if you can, you know, if you're going to sit and argue with God, you're going to miss your opportunity. Too many people are like, well, God, I don't know how that would work. So you think because you don't know how it's going to work, that it's not going to work. And so you're not going to do anything. But uh, Elisha, he's not a scientist. He's, not, he's just saying, listen, God said it, so I'm going to do it. And so what does he say? This is what the Lord says. God spoke to his heart. I've healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained wholesome to this day. To this day. What would God do if you'd simply step out in faith? Because I believe there's many times we hear of somebody's problem, and in that moment, God's speaking and saying, I want you to pray. I want to help them. I want you to pray for provision. I want you to pray for healing. I want you to pray for something to happen in that marriage. I want you to pray for something to happen to that child that would be good, that would bring about a resolve. And, and if we're not careful, we're, we're, we're like, oh, I don't know, I don't want to look silly, or I don't know what they'll think. Who cares? He said, this is what the Lord says. You know, as I was studying for this message, and, and um, you know, that, that scripture is, is a scripture God used in, in uh, our lives. Uh, it'd be over a decade ago, so it'd be 10 plus years. Uh, we were living in a house, and uh, it was out in the country. You expect in the country you're going to have, you know, varmints and critters and all that kind of thing. And um, so we, it was the dead of winter. Um, we don't have like Dish Network or DirecTV or, and if, if you do, fine. I'm not, that's not the point of this. But we couldn't get any even local TV uh, reception. So we hired a company to come out and put an antenna in our attic. So it was in January, and, and uh, they're out there, and, and I can remember the day there's like three or four of them up in the attic. And one of them comes down, and he says, uh, Reverend, um, we got a problem. I said, really, what's the problem? And he said, well, you got, you got snakes up there. And I said, excuse me, um, is that snake 
or snakes. He said, there's an S on it. And I said, well, like how many? I mean, like that really matters. <laughs> he says, oh, you got a lot of them. They'd asked for a trash bag earlier, and we hand him a kitchen trash bag, and he said, see this thing? It is full of snake skins. And that's not even the beginning of it. I was like, really? He said, in fact, I need a big garbage bag, so I got him a 39-gallon bag. And I mean, they fill the thing full of snake skins. And so, you know, I'm, I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, oh, wow, this is, this is not good. And so I'm just trying to see how big they are. So I pull one out. Like, the first one I pull out, it's as tall as I am. I have a picture of it. I'm going to show it to you. But uh, it's back when I was wearing my shaved head. So it was um, this tall. So, you know, I go to Debbie, because all of you are thinking, well, I wonder what Debbie thought. Her response is very interesting. She's like, I don't care. They bothered me. I'm not bothering them. I was, I was like, what kind of answer is that from a lady? So, so what I do is I have this little black snake that looks, it's like a I bought it in Central America. It looks so real. And you know, it's one of those wood ones, but they painted it perfectly, designed it perfectly. And I thought, she's not afraid of snakes. We'll test this out. So I had it in the bedroom. I put it on the bedroom where, where you know, she might run into it. <laughs> and I'm telling you, she never had dance lessons, but boy, that girl can move if there's a <laughs> So anyway, what we're doing then is we're putting a snake around. I mean, that's neither here nor there. So got snakes, call the exterminator. And uh, the exterminator, he goes up in there and he says, you know, I can't find them, but he said it's winter, so they're hibernating. And, you know, they're in all the insulation. So you can see the holes where they've gone in and out of the insulation. So um, I said, well, what, what can we do? He said, well, I can tell you where they're coming in and you need to seal that up. I said, well, if I seal it up, then how are they going to get out of here? <laughs> you know, so I'm, I'm thinking this, and he's like, man, I don't know. That's a good question. So, but he said, I would seal it up. So I, I go in there, and I seal it up, and he says, you seal it up, and then what I'm going to do is I'm going to put glue boards down all over, and then that way you just go up every few days and check when it starts to warm up, and, and you'll see the, the snakes up there. And so I was like, oh, wow. So... You know, I seal it up, get the glue boards down, and I'm praying in our house, you know, in my office, and, and um, thinking about this, but reading as well, reading my Bible that day, and I come to this passage. When I come to this passage, the Lord speaks to my heart and says, I want you to go outside. I want you to speak my word over this house, and I want you to use that verse. So I went out there, and I, I looked at the house, and I said, this is what the Lord says. I have healed this house, and no snake will ever be in it again. Amen. I felt the presence of the Lord when I did it. And guess what? There never was a snake ever again anywhere. I mean, the glue boards and the whole thing. There was no snakes ever. And I don't ever remember after that ever seeing even a snake around the house. It was really like, God just made it a no-snake zone. So um, anyway, that doesn't have a lot to do with that. That's all. I hated to do that in one sense because I thought that's all they're going to remember. They're going to go home and talk about Pastor Snake's story. But uh, seize opportunities for miracles. 
Listen to the Lord. Believe him. You know, listen, I, I think there are some of you even today that you're in a situation and in the next week or two, God's going to put a scripture in your heart and he's going to remind you of the story I just told and you're going to do it and, and it's going to work to your blessing. Number three, conviction in the face of unbelief. So we've got confidence in God's word. We've got courage to seize opportunities. Number three, conviction in the face of unbelief. Look at it. Verse 23, from there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some youths came out of the town and jeered at him. Go on up, you bald head. Go on up, you bald head. He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. Now, this is a strange story. <laughs> You're like, that is. But let me give you a little principle that I think is really important to remember in your Bible reading. If something is strange, it's important. Just always, if, it's, if there's a strange story, say, oh, there's something important going on here. Last week, we talked about a part of what's happening here is it's an illustration that we need to respect God's anointing on the lives of, of people that he's anointed. I would suggest that doesn't just apply to preachers. It applies to, to other people. We just need to be careful. When we see the hand of God is on somebody, it's, it's not that you can't have conversation or if you want a dialogue about something. I'm not saying that can't happen. I'm just saying what, what should never happen is you go away and criticize them or malign them or go on social media about them. Are you with me on that? Because when someone is anointed, the anointing power of the Holy Spirit and presence is on them, and it's hard to discern where that ends and they began. Because God uses the personality of the person. So we have to be very, very careful. You may not like their ministry. You may not like their style of ministry. You may not prefer that. But if the presence of the Lord is on them, you want to be very careful about attacking them, lest you experience a discipline from the hand of God. And we can look at that. You can see it in Moses. You can see it with King Saul. King Saul was a terrible king. And yet David, when he cut the corner of his garment, he was conscience-stricken, and he said, God forbid that I touch the Lord's anointed. And that should be for all of us. You say, but what if I think what they're doing is false doctrine? Listen, if it's, if it's not something that's going to keep people out of heaven, then what is it to you? I mean, especially if they're a thousand miles away, what do you care? Did God make you the captain of the God squad? I mean, are you going to go do a citizen's arrest? I mean, why, why, why would you waste your time? Let them go. Bless them. Better to let them go and leave them to their own master. To his own master, each servant stands or falls. Paul says, don't judge anything before it's time. The Lord is the one who's going to judge. Now listen, if it's stirring people away from faith in Jesus Christ, I get the need to confront. But then I think even then you've got to be careful. I don't think social media is ever the place you do that. But move on. Why risk incurring a deficit in your own life or a discipline in your own life 
because of criticism on another's ministry. I, I just, I think it's a word of caution there, that there's something else happening here that I think is really significant. Bethel, the word means house of God. It was at Bethel that God appeared to Jacob and he saw the stairway to heaven. It's, it, Bethel was a spiritual center in Israel. But when the kingdom had a civil war and the son of Solomon, Rehoboam, uh, and Jeroboam led a revolt against him, and when they divided the kingdom into Israel into the kingdom of Judah, what happened is Jeroboam said, you know what? People are going to go back to worship at Jerusalem. If they go to Jerusalem, then they're going to eventually depose me, maybe even kill me. So what Jeroboam did is he put two golden calves, one at Bethel and one up north in Dan. In fact, if you go to Israel today, you can see the platform where the calf at Dan sat. They've Archaeologists have identified it. So what happens is Bethel now becomes this place of apostate worship endorsed by the royal family. Remember, Jeroboam is there, and he's worshiping that golden calf, and a prophet uh, pronounces God's judgment on that altar, and, he, and Jeroboam says, seize him, and his arm shrivels up. I mean, the whole thing, the, the place is rich with, with the imagery of false worship, and now in Ahab's time, you not only have them worshiping the calf, but you have them doing uh, fertility worship, and they're worshiping Baal and Asherah, and, and that involves temple prostitutes, and the whole thing is just horrible. And Elijah, Elisha's predecessor, he confronted the nation over this. Remember at Mount Carmel, 1 Kings chapter 18, he calls down fire and says, I'm going to prove to you God, the true God is the God of the Bible. Fire falls from heaven. Now Elijah's gone. You have these youths, and the number 42, don't have time to show you how it's used in Scripture, but uh, 2 Kings chapter 10, you'll see it. It's, it's attached to the royal family that is given to idol worship. So these are either young men from the royal family or young men from a pagan, from the, the pagan priesthood. They've heard that Elijah's gone. They hated him. He made them look bad. He attacked their worship. They've also heard that now Elisha has struck the water and the Jordan's parted. They've heard that Elisha has healed the waters at Jericho. And now they've come to try to intimidate him. They don't want another Elijah, so they're going to try to intimidate Elisha into silence. Can I just tell you that's exactly the way the enemy wants to work? Students, this is a word for you as you head back to school, whether university or, you know, grade school or high school, that there, there is an enemy who wants to silence you, who wants to tell you, oh, you're not, not, you're not anything. You can't do it. You don't think you're going to be whatever. And they're going to bully you and criticize you and intimidate you, and they're going to point out you're not like that person, and they'll name somebody. You think you're this. You think you're Billy Graham, or you think whoever they want to name. You think, you think you're all that. You think you're Jesus. Trying to silence you because the enemy wants you silent. And they're going to Elijah, and they're saying, or Elisha, and they're saying, you think you're Elijah's successor. You don't even look like him. Elisha was a hairy man. And you're bald. You can't even grow a head of hair. So how do you think God 
is even going to use you. It's a really derogatory thing in that culture to even bring that up. Here's what we know about Elijah. We know this, that the king sends messengers. Elijah meets them, stops them, sends them back to the king. And the king says, well, what sort of man was he? What did he look like? And they said he was a hairy man. And the king said, oh, that's Elijah. He knew right away who it was. So here they are in verse 23. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel, and as he was walking along the road, some youths came out of the town and jeered at him. Go on up, you bald head. Go on up, you bald head. They knew who he was. They knew about the miracles. They knew all of that. And they were saying, you're no Elijah. And notice they say it twice, and what happens? Two bears. There's a connection between what they say twice. Because see, let me just say this. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Two harsh statements, two bears come and maul them. What I want you to notice, though, is I want you to notice Elisha's conviction. He knows who he, was, who he is. He knows he serves a God whose very name is powerful. Listen, there is power in the name of the Lord. There is power in the name of Jesus. You bring Jesus into an equation, there's power in his name. you got to believe that. You're his child. Watch what he says. It says, he turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Now, let me say this. As people of the new covenant, we don't curse, we bless. We, we understand now. We've got the full revelation of who God is through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And this is what he said. He said, but I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. And we can do that because we know that we have a powerful God and there's power in his name. Okay, I love Proverbs 18, 10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run to it, and they are saved. Power in the name of the Lord. Because we have a lot of new people, I just will wrap it up with this. You know, at the end of the service, and some people don't stay long enough to experience what I would call one of the most important moments in the service. It's a moment where we do a blessing, but it's, it's not just like a liturgy we do. In fact, I remember when the Lord spoke to me, it was, it was way back in the old building. And the Lord began to deal with me about, I want you to say this over the people. And I felt, you know, I, I wasn't, you know, I, I, I just had a lot of questions and I would, and the Lord would keep bringing it up. I want you to do this. I want you to pronounce this blessing over the people because I want to bless them and I want to set my name on them. A powerful name on them. The blessing we do is in Numbers 6, where the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons to bless the people of Israel with this special blessing. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace. Now, you say, oh, that's beautiful, and there's different ways it can be said, but I like the NLT because it really kind of teases out what's, what's said in other versions that are maybe less clear. But notice what happens at the end. 
God says this, whenever Aaron and his sons bless the people of Israel in this way, I myself will bless them. And, and the NIV puts it this way, and I think it's more accurate to the text. So they will put my name on the Israelites, and I will bless them. So there's something that happens in that moment where the name of the Lord comes down on you. You say, what does that mean? I honestly think we'll only in heaven really understand it. However, there is something that happens. I remember we had a couple, they were drove in from, you know, they live out in the country and, and they're Baptist in background. And, and he asked why everybody raised their hand. I, I've never asked people to raise their hand, but he asked why everybody raised their hand. And, and um, he said, I'm not raising my hand. And um, his wife said to him, you know, sometime you ought to just try it. See what happens. So, you know, like, like a lot of people, and I get it, I'm not making fun, but it, it is funny to me. Because a lot of people, when they first start, you know, they, they kind of go like this. And then, you know, if you're not used to it, you're like, all the hands go up. And you're like, I'm not really comfortable doing that. And, and uh, so you start there because, you know, nobody will really see you. Uh, but he got his hand like right to here. And during the blessing, he said it was like lightning came down through his hand and went clear through his boots. He said, I could, I could feel it. He said, I, I felt lightning. So he said, now let's both, both my hands, you know. So um, to me, it's not about what you feel or don't feel. It's about the power of the Lord in his name coming down on you that God puts that on you. There's power in the name of the Lord which should give us confidence and conviction in the face of people who don't believe, right? So all I'm saying is we're in, a, we're in a supernatural time where the wind is at our back. Still happening. I can read you. Hey, I'm telling you the testimonies every week. It's not like we don't have testimonies to tell you. God is working powerfully, but he wants to work more powerfully through you than he ever has before. So he's saying, listen, have confidence enough in my word that you'll just step out. Just believe the word. Jesus said, ask and you'll receive. Believe that. Jesus said, you can ask anything in my name and I'll do it. Believe that. Have the courage to seize opportunities. Next time, instead of feeling sorry for somebody or expressing sympathy, how about you do that and then say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to pray and believe God for a miracle right now in Jesus' name. We're going to believe a six-year-old girl is going to have her arm healed. We're going to believe that mass is going to disappear. We're going to believe your heel is going to be healed. We're going to believe that celiac disease. We're going to believe, listen, those are just some of them from today. We're going to believe. And then how about having the conviction? As you go to school or as you go into the workplace or as you're talking to family who don't believe or neighbors or whatever, have the conviction that says, I believe God and I'm standing strong and there's power in the name of the Lord. Praise God. And that God who has power in his name is for me. And if he is for me, who can be against me? Amen. And stand tall for him, believing he is a true God who cares about you and is there to help you.